a real family, which everyone deserves, and you deserve. We don't talk about our pasts. We don't have pasts. Our lives started when we met Charlie. You look like a Marcy May. Marcy was my grandmother's name. The imitation of Christ. <laughs> Solid silver and downcast eyes. <laughs> I didn't want virtue or lecture. <laughs> Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures in life bother you? No. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Hey, we're back. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I just received a really nice bunch of flowers for my birthday, so I'm in a very good mood right now. Oh, that's amazing. You've got a very thoughtful boyfriend. I do. I've never, as I was saying to you earlier, I've never received flowers from a man before <laughs> in my life. 33 tomorrow, and this is my first time. So I'm like, I'm really um, over the moon with um, traditional feminine uh, values <laughs> <laughs> right now. You definitely deserve flowers every day, not just on your birthday. Oh, thank you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm so happy we're recording today. Actually, you know what? This is our 50th episode. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I should have got you flowers. <laughs> I should have got you flowers as well. Um, yeah, really exciting. I can't believe we, this is a mi- milestone. I'm it so happy. It really is. To, yeah. Here's oh. to 50 more. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, everyone, for taking part in our 49 episodes so far. Yeah. And, uh, congratulations, all of you, on reaching 50. Yeah, congrats to all of you for um, being interested in the high art of psychoanalysis and cinema. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're all very good people. Yeah, absolutely. You be proud the, of yourselves. <laughs> the best of the best. They, yeah, you truly are. Um, yeah, and... Uh, I guess we've been kind of warming up prior to recording and uh, I did want to kind of share a little bit of a story time that I just told you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've just started working at the National Archive for the British Film Institute. I've actually been redeployed there. And an interesting story is that when I um, was shown my new office, I was told that that wing of the archive building is haunted by a ghost. I cannot think of a better person to inhabit that office than you, Mary. It's amazing. I know. I I think the person who told me that was half expecting me to be like concerned or something, but I think she wasn't expecting my reaction to be like, oh, wow, that's so exciting. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm just so I'm so jealous and happy for you at the same time, <laughs> which I think is actually the best and most complimentary um, yeah. combination of emotions that you <laughs> can be inspiring someone. Ooh. Especially a Scorpio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, I had a very Scorpio outing from lockdown this week. I um, mm-hmm. went to one of those online courses at the Miskatonic um, <gasps> Institute. Oh my god! Am I saying really? that right, Miss Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How I, was it? It was great. It was um, Misty Comics, uh, Gothic for Girls in Misty wow. Comics, which I don't have a memory of because I'm too young. Um, mm-hmm. Do you do you know what they are? Do they no. have? I guess they didn't have them in Canada. No. Um, but they were like a sort of mystery comic for for little girls, for like mm-hmm. young. Well, I don't know how old. Um, but there was like a huge comic book culture in um, like bef- sort of before, before before the 90s, I guess, mm-hmm. um, when like entertainment started to kind of change. Um, and there were there were like loads of comics for and they were like quite sort of gender divided. So you had comics for boys and comics for girls. And there was a comic called Misty, which was supposed to be a mystery comic, but was actually full of like lots of horror genre things. 
um oh. it was so fascinating I would really recommend them because of the lockdown all of their classes because they you know they they have um sort of branches in Toronto I think and New York New York they've got an LA and they've got a London but this is the first time you you're able to attend classes from instructors in all four places because they're all online oh um so I I really had a good good time it was just it was like nice to kind of um how I like you know I like that kind of academic spin of a of a sort of a workshop you know where you kind of like listen and absorb someone else's research um so yeah I thought it was really good also you have a course coming up yeah I do um I guess it's yeah I suppose it is worth mentioning it since uh this episode is going to come out in advance of uh the actual event I've got it's women in horror films and it's hosted by Freud Museum London and it is online as well you can just um get like a zoom link and follow along yeah it's going to be a good one yes everyone book Mary's courses are amazing (laughs) thank you thank you so much it's November 26th amazing (laughs) yeah so yes we're um kind of doing really well in this cults on film uh series I feel like I'm really in the throes of the topic now Oh really? Yeah, I yeah. Feel, I feel I feel that way too. Although I was just saying that the this week's films, I um I, I was I kind of watched them more as a sponge than a filter because I just enjoy mm-hmm. Midsummer so much, and oh, because uh, Fight Club just threw me for a loop because I hadn't seen it for about ten years and I forgot mm-hmm. what it was like. Just <laughs> complete. It really like really surprised me. So um, this week we're discussing the theme of identification identification absolutely mm-hmm. yeah um and for this was i guess i think this is the kind of theoretical framework that i'm most wedded to when it comes to approaching cults and the mindset of being in a cult mm-hmm. um and it's 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 the thing that's kind of always been on my mind in terms of the driving force of people becoming members and the recruitment process and what's really kind of the underlying mechanism of hooking people. Mm-hmm. And um, Freud actually had a lot to say about the process of identification. Um, he initially kind of discussed identification as, uh, you know, there's primary identification and then secondary slash narcissistic identification. And the first phase, which we all go through, it's like universal, Um it's the type of bond between a small infant and their caregiver, usually a mother, um, right, you know, postpartum, the baby is held by the mother and is really kind of like cradled in the mother's body. And there's like maybe nursing involved, breastfeeding, etc. So the, 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 the kind of assumption is that in that period inside the infant's mind, there is no difference between their body and the body of the caregiver, the, the two physiological components are fused. Mm. You know, the baby is just an extension, like a limb of the mother. But then as the child starts to like grow and develop and gain new abilities, um, and with that a little bit more independent, they're able to like be potty trained or they start to say their first words and they're not 100% reliant on the mother even though that's a wonderful thing to be like maturing and and developing um, psychoanalysts believe that this second phase of identification, which is called uh, narcissistic identification with that comes what Freud called the first psychic wound, which Mm. means that even though it's, it's great to be growing and getting better at things, you experience your first sense of loss that, um, you know, this mother who'd always been there, almost like a part of your body, um, is n- now there's a separation between you and you and her, you know, and you, you it's, it's the first sense of feeling abandoned. Mm. And <laughs> it's, um, I don't know why this topic makes me like lose my breath a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel a bit like, whew, okay, a bit winded. <laughs> Yeah, it's making me a bit upset too. <laughs> yeah, like honestly, like I feel like I'm kind of processing my first psychic wound. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the point is that you know you you experience your first sense of loss, 
and now you have to kind of confront your first heartbreak, actually. And the, the idea of the narcissistic identification comes with the fact that unconsciously we try and identify with the lost object. Mm. So the, the abandoned object or the first heartbreak or the first unrequited love. So we actually like start to adorn ourselves or attribute in our own personality elements of the thing that we lost. Yeah. Now that means that all of us, you know, without exception, um, come out of this identification process with that kind of bit of like something that's been hollowed out in our psyche, something that feels like it's been removed or ripped apart from us. And therefore, all of us have a lack, you know, mm. have this kind of like missing piece. But we continue to uh, replicate the process of secondary identification by identifying with the lost object constantly. We kind always seem to continue that pattern, you know, repeat that template of identifying with something we lost and we seek it out in other people who we identify as you know fellow grieving people <laughs> fellow fellow kind of like um walking wounded just like we are having said that this is very much at the heart of a paper by freud called group psychology and the analysis of the ego highly recommend reading this paper it's from 1921 so almost the 100 year anniversary of it actually so in the paper, he says, I'm just going to read this quote out. He says, a primary mass is a number of individuals who have put one and the same object in place of their ego ideal and consequently identify with each other, end quote. Mm. So basically, um, this is a largely like unconscious identification with the other individuals of the group where we feel like we, we all have the same lack, right? Mm -hmm. And this functions as a binding element between those people. And we see this happening all the time, especially on social media in real time, you know, mm -hmm. where we see like masses of people sometimes like piling on someone's like post or um, sometimes there are certain like social media campaigns that tries to like, um, maybe for marketing reasons, sometimes it can be very cynical reasons, um, bring people together, but kind of on the threshold of, on like the platform of them having the same damage or something. Mm. And this is a very powerful binding exercise. Hashtag so me too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... And the thing is, sometimes these hashtag campaigns can start really legitimately and they may have very, you know, they may be very well intentioned. But um, I think my point is that the thing that binds them, can, that can be very powerful and kind of almost like blinkering mm. to all kind of opposing arguments or all opposing perspectives or even the slightest criticism is that they so powerfully identify with each other's lack, the thing that they've lost. And that is even more powerful than the role of a leader in, let's say, a cult. Mm. So in both of these films, I feel, in Fight Club and in Midsummer, um, we see kind of like very diverse examples of people kind of come, rallying together um, and there may not even be necessarily like a strong leader influence, but it's so convincing and it's become so dominating over the mental state of the person that they kind of start to act very irrationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of just the gist of it, really, the theoretical element is that people are identifying with each other's lack. And that is even more powerful than the thing that ostensibly is leading them, which is the word of the leader. That almost is like incidental. <laughs> so can I ask you a question, which you may not be able to answer or like uh -huh. may not be able to answer straight away. So it might be something we come back to towards the end of the episode. Yeah. 
but like so presumably this like end of primary identification is inevitable it can't it can't not happen Mm -mm. um and the solution to it isn't isn't to join a cult or um (laughs) you know rely too much on this um this kind of joining of souls by through what we've lost Mm -hmm. so are we all doomed to be broken people or is there is there like a psychoanalytic uh like stage that you can get to where that's okay I mean I ideally you know um we find productive ways to channel our identification in such a way that we're kind of trying to process and confront our lack but in a way that helps us evolve like Mm. maybe in a way that's creative or in a way that is contributes to like actually productive work or maybe loving someone and looking after someone in a way that helps them Mm. and kind of like supports them and uplifts them um but there is no there's no getting away from it like we all do do come from a place of lack like I mean in in Lacanian psychoanalysis that is expressed in being a subject you know subjectivity we all have these failings you know um but that's okay. Like there's, that's not an indictment on the individual. Mm. It's just, it's just a human condition, you know? Um, but, you know, hopefully we find ways of channeling that and then maybe sublimating, you know? Um, I mean, I, I, I like to joke with Paul and tell him that if I'm watching too many horror movies, like he should just be grateful because if I weren't doing that, maybe I'd be out like um, following my violent impulses in other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just joking, but. <laughs> it's, it is interesting. It does point to the idea of um, like dual drives being very important to us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've talked, we've talked, we were talking just now about Eros and Thanatos, but yes. also the, you know the reason that we all have that lack is because you know there are competing drives for identification and individualization yeah um, and those are the things that kind of drive us you can't just have one drive because no. you wouldn't make any progress um so yeah no. that's very interesting I think we're um it's weird how everything kind of comes back to those sort of life force and death drive yeah, you have to have exactly. a bit of destruction with your creativity yeah, absolutely. And like trying to eradicate the darker aspect is actually really damaging and mm. it can lead to like mental illness or other symptoms, you know? Um, but you're absolutely right on. I mean, it is, it does kind of um, co- always come back to the negotiation of of the two kind of the, the entwined dual system of Eros and Thanatos of the life force and the death drive. So we're just, you know, make, make do with what we've been given. Mm. And, um, and sometimes that can mean uh, kind of like trial and error or whatever, but ultimately the, it's important to kind of acknowledge and bear witness to the origin, which is this kind of like tricky aspect of identification. You know, it's not smooth sailing. If anything, it can be very traumatic. Well, shall we start with Fight Club? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, I'm going to synopsize. It's a okay. long synopsis, this one. It's like, <laughs> I didn't even get to the denouement. I like, I got, you know, but it's, there's a big setup to this film. Wow. Um, so, a nameless automobile recall specialist suffering from insomnia finds temporary relief by attending various disease support groups where he meets Marla, another tourist. When his apartment explodes in a freak accident, he goes to stay with Tyler Durden, an eccentric but seductive soap salesman he met on a business flight. Tyler gradually begins to influence his outlook on life and his behaviour, and the two begin a fight club which, which attracts numerous men who relate to Tyler's rhetoric. As the group begins to spread to other states, things get out of control. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good. Um, so you said you, you hadn't watched it in, in a few years and you re- recently, you had you revisited for this. I did. I mean, I'm interested in what happened to Fight Club culturally um, mm-hmm. because when I was a teenager, this was like, you know, this was, a, you know, it was 1999. I guess I saw yeah. it in the early 2000s. 
um, it was a very well regarded film, and you know, is and David Finch is still a well, really well regarded director. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we all loved it. We all thought it was amazing. Um, mm. And then I think uh, since then, there's been a, a sort of there's been a, a kind of group think of um, it being a, a misogynistic film, or David Finch maybe being a bit of a misogynistic director. So mm. I'd stayed away from it, just, I guess, kind of influenced by that, not necessarily agreeing yeah. with, but, you know, I was just, I just, I think mm. I, I probably thought that as I was growing up to a certain extent, like it is about male aggression. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think I'd stayed away from it, but I was really pleasantly surprised. I thought it was a really brilliant film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously we've talked before, but a film, just because a film, the film's characters have a certain point of view, it doesn't mean that that's what the film's point of view is. No, um, so you know, I, very, I disagree with that with that reading of it. Um, yeah, but I was, you know, when we chose this film, I I thought, yeah, Fight Club, cults, totally, we can make that work. I didn't realize how much it's about a cult oh, until yeah. I watched it. Like every single step of, um, it, I mean, obviously there's a, a twist because you know Tyler's not a, a person, a real person. He's just an aspect of the of our protagonist. Yeah. But still, everything he does, all of the, you know, the way he speaks, the way he, the things that he says, like, the the steps he takes to kind of, to break down people's identity, uh, yeah. it's all, like, it's textbook cult. And I didn't, I never realised, really, that that must, that must have been what Fincher took from. Um, it's just, like, a step-by-step how to, how to do that to people. Um, I thought it was great. I really... I I um I was just surprised that it was that it was about a cult to the extent I thought we might have to kind of wedge it in a little bit, um. But yeah, for all the whole, there's a whole brainwashing process there. There is, yeah. Um, and as but, you said, it's based yeah. entirely on 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 um, you know, well, I mean, it's it starts with a group of people that a group of men that literally, um, don't have balls anymore, like yeah. have lost their manhood Mm -hmm. and then it continues on that path of accentuating um all these what you know the the loss of well masculinity to a certain extent Mm -hmm. um so yeah yeah, it really is what you're saying that it's very it's um a group of people who have bonded because of their lack as opposed to through kind of productive means and then they act out destructively yeah um that's like that's you know when you make friends based on on lack your your what you do together is is destructive yeah absolutely Mm. absolutely well said actually and and um when the narrator uh edward norton uh always amazing i love him Mm, got a crush yeah Mm. me too (laughs) (laughs) So when we first see him, I mean, like we do see that he's like a very existentially conflicted person. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind. Of, I mean, this could have easily been in our like work and money uh, series. Yeah, as well. I thought that too. I thought that too. You know, someone really disaffected by their kind of neoliberal life choices. You mm. know, um, kind of just working a job they hate to buy things they don't need. You know. The things they own, owning them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it's like, it's it's definitely a critique of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that we see him trying to find something to like take away the the emptiness, the void. He does find momentarily, like I guess, a sense of solace in these like support groups, and he's infuriated because he meets someone else who's like there for fraudulent reasons yeah he's exposed exposing his lack he's kind of furious because she, her presence is a constant reminder that he's a tourist and he's a fraud mm-hmm. and so it's a really kind of interesting uh story about love actually you know that um we see someone who actually you know who actually meets a kindred spirit but is terrified of what she's able to expose, like the authenticity that she's able to expose. So he kind of runs away and he he replaces these support groups with something else. He's actually building a cult, but he's not, but again, he doesn't have the balls to like fully 
take ownership of starting a, a cult, he invents this other character. It's like dissociative identity disorder, mm-hmm. where he's invented this character, Tyler Durden, who he's kind of attributed with all of his ideal characteristics of a man. Um, the way he looks, the way he dresses, his body, the way he talks, everything. Um, and he, he he makes that character be responsible for starting this, like, terrorist organization, <laughs> you know? Um, and so even there, he lacks the courage to, like, actually take ownership of what he's doing. So and, you're saying yeah. that Fight Club's, a, oh, my God, yeah. Fight Club's entirely about a guy who is avoiding getting into a relationship yes (laughs) (laughs) so he joins a cult not not even that he joins a cult he starts a cult he starts a cult and 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 pretends like cosplays as a member just someone who's been like roped into it Mm. okay this is well I mean I feel like every at least uh, probably every episode there's you know um a reading of a film that wins the award and you've won this week's award <laughs> like that's 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 the award for best reading really good oh thank you but honestly <laughs> like that because even all those like little vignettes of him and marla in the in like the kitchen of that weird house Mm-hmm. to her he she's obviously spent the night with him but he's a completely different person and he pretends to not know what's going on um that is just kind of fits with the narrative of a guy who's so non-committal about everything like his his psychic wound is so bad that he would prefer to pretend that she's sleeping with somebody else his housemate <laughs> <laughs> You know, just to not get broken up with again, just to not get abandoned again, you know, just to not get like left in the lurch once again. So he's quite content having this double life, like this kind of multiple personality disorder, if it means that he has like this respite in his mind where he can pretend there's two of them. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, like it's just... <laughs> um. But the thing about the cult is that when he starts this little group of people who meet underground, the thing that unites them, the thing that binds them is that they're nothing, Mm. you know? So in a way, it's like a very nihilistic film philosophically. Like at first you think that, oh, great. Well, these people are actually enlightened because they all know that they're nothing. Um, they all kind of accept that they're just specks of dust in the universe, so they're at peace. <laughs> but the truth is that they keep coming back to prove the point again. Mm. They, they keep coming back and it starts to change. It starts to morph from just like an activity of just fighting, like boxing or something, into like an ideology. Mm. And into like just the continual indoctrination that they are nothing and that, um, you know, they don't even have an identity, actually. Like even Edward Norton's character, he doesn't have a name. I mean, I couldn't help but read this film also kind of almost as a kind of prototype of Internet culture. And I mean, this is the second time now in this series that I've mentioned like Pepe, <laughs> but um, just this kind of alt-right culture online of, um, peop- you know, mostly men on the internet kind of leading quite lonely lives, let's say the incel life, and then co- continually returning online on 4chan and like Reddit and stuff and mostly being like mostly being abused and abusing other people. Like it's a pretty rough kind of dynamic on those sites, mm. but they they return because the the abuse and the pain that they're receiving in, in in those places and also the incitement to be the most abusive person on 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 the platform as well like the kind of constant competition to be the most outrageous this is the thing that binds them you know it is kind of like a cult this I, they're unconsciously identifying with all the other people on that platform um, and this f- sort of functions as a binding element. Paradoxically, now they've finally found this cesspit where they're not alone. Someone, you know, they can dish out abuse and they can take it. And it 
that becomes their group that becomes their cult <laughs> well until they do leave of course because yeah. you know and I think that actually even though we've chosen uh, midsummer to talk about second which usually means yeah. that we think that there's some kind of resolution um there yeah. is a resolution at the end of fight club and um and it is it, it's interesting because it kind of shows the um the difficulty of either leaving a cult or leaving that sort of destructive negative state of mind that you've become attached to mm-hmm. um because he has this you know he has this massive struggle once he kind of wakes up and decides that there are things that there are kind of creative productive things productive things worth living for like Marla um at that point he can't meet a single person that isn't in on it and isn't like isn't doesn't have the same outlook and rhetoric um so that must be really what people experience at leaving actual cults or yeah. getting away from like extremist online communities or just kind of letting go of that depressive mindset where um where you're kind of attached to your like lack and misfortune more than you're you know and terrified of of opportunities for happiness um yeah or maybe it's not even so much that you are not attached to your lack and you start you kind of cease to put it on a pedestal as some kind of like driving force for everything for every aspect of your life and that you can actually find uh reference points where your identity is not fused with that group anymore you're not completely identified Mm. with that group you have like other aspects to you that are kind of separate and independent and maybe autonomous and I think that in Fight Club you're right like his coming to terms with his feelings for Marla comes to stand as something that he can do without the boys in the Fight Club Mm. like it's not even that he's looking to Marla to like fill the lack it's that she has the same lack, you know, um, with her, he's not overcompensating. Mm. He's not this kind of fragile person. He's, he's just looking at things truthfully. Uh, however may she, you know, however much she may be flawed as well. I mean, she is flawed. She doesn't pretend she's not. Yeah. So it's, it's more that, you know, it's kind of, I'm so interested in how passionate people get in, in these groups where they feel so bonded you know, and they express such a strong sense of loyalty for the other members. And it's like, they're so locked in, like they're in lockstep with each other, you know, in this group, emotionally and psychically. And I always used to think like, what, what is the thing that makes them like glued to each other like that? Like, and, and I have to kind of come back to Freud's argument about, you know, identification and the fact that these people feel reassured to see their own lack reflected and refracted in the group and that's the thing that binds them you know it binds you together and you can come and cry together and sh- and share the burden of the sadness because that person feels it too mm-hmm. you know yeah that's really nice that's really yeah I've to- I have nothing to add <laughs> like I totally agree <laughs> with you it's really interesting yeah, I mean, not, not to say that like every single group dynamic that is based on identification in this way has to be toxic. Not at all. Like, not at all. We see that already, like in the support group, this type of identification is the driving force for those people. You know, they, they come to share in each other's sadness, but they they just stay there and they comfort each other, mm-hmm. you know, and, that, and that's OK. When it starts to get culty and therefore maybe toxic is the promise of something you know you can make things happen and you can start to make your lack disappear you haven't fully accepted maybe your mortality or maybe your human failings or whatever and that's when I think it's problematic because those that's just snake oil Mm. (laughs) you know it's bullshit um that's why I like psychoanalysis because it's really upfront it's like or at least the for I think the Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalysis that's kind of unconscious based. It's it's constantly telling you you're a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> and I can go down with that. <laughs> yeah, it's very comforting in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> Should we move to midsummer? Yeah, let's move to midsummer. Okay. Um, 2019. 
Um, when psychology student Danny experiences a traumatic family tragedy, she leans on her already strange relationship with her boyfriend Christian, who isn't brave enough to break up with her despite pressure from his friends. When Danny learns that Christian is planning a trip to Sweden with his friends Pelle, Josh and Mark, Christian invites her along and the group sets off to Swedish student, Swedish student Pelle's home village, where the inhabitants live a communal lifestyle with some strange traditions. I wrote very difficult to pronounce um, synopses today. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a bit of a tongue twister. Mm. No, that's perfect. Ariaster. Ariaster. When I first watched this movie, I um I I was out with some people. So this was obviously pre-pandemic, and um, it was already released in the cinema and just some people were like having drinks and stuff inside the picture house central. And uh, I said, Oh, it's coming to around 10 o'clock. There's going to be a screening of midsummer. Does anyone want to go with me? I can get you a comp. And, and then like most people were like, nah, thanks. Like, I don't like horror movies. I don't like horror movies. <laughs> but then this one girl who had seen it the week before, she started pleading with me not to see it. She was like begging me. <laughs> whoa she was like mary please don't watch this movie it's so fucked up it's so traumatic oh my god i wish i hadn't seen this movie it's so scary and i'm like i, I literally said like honestly you're really selling it to me anyone who knows you that's not the that's not what to say to stop you seeing a movie the way that's the best <laughs> elevator pitch ever yeah so then I went inside by myself and I fucking loved it. Oh, me too. I had such a good time at this film. Um, I've seen it three or four times since yeah. then and loved it every single time. I think it's brilliant. I don't find it particularly traumatic. No. Um, no, me neither. I mean, I don't, you know, obviously it's like all relative. but Yeah, of course. I wasn't expecting, you know, I, I didn't see anything the way that she described it. I just... Um, like yeah okay the opening uh sh sequence when danny's sister commits murder suicide mm. um i mean that's pretty hard going for sure it's pretty harrowing and i really love uh is it is it florence Pugh? yeah she is amazing oh my God. she is incredible like her her wailing after the death of her family like the way that she just broke down and those like almost like animalistic sounds of like being wounded yeah she's an amazing oh. actress she's always I mean I, I again I think I've said this about numerous actors and actresses on the mm. podcast but she's another one that I feel was kind of stolen from me because I oh. saw uh, The Falling um, the right. Carol Morley film and I just remember saying she was oh, going to be massive and that she was so good and, now, it. and everyone knows her now um next person I'm calling it's already happened a little bit next person I'm calling is um uh no I can't remember her name but the girl in I Daniel Blake and in Fabric oh, in Fabric uh, yes yeah um who's actually had a channel 4 tv show recently so she's getting oh. quite famous but again she's another one where it's just she's going to be big and famous and not even know that I loved her first but oh that's God. how it goes that's how it goes but yeah Florence Pugh is amazing every little thing she's done she was even in a little like crime drama maybe it was Luther or something like that or like an she was just in an episode or two episodes and she was brilliant in that she was a cam girl in that oh, um, so she's did done lots of like little things and then just kind of exploded with Midsummer and Little Women that's um, right but yeah amazing amazing actress everyone's great in this film I like how everyone's pretty normal looking yeah, in this film. and I like how they're kind of that you know they're they're university students, which is is um, the the time when you start when you kind of form bonds more because people are around you than because you actually identify with each other. Yeah, um, so it is like the the time of of temporary bonds, and it just made me kind of remember that and and think oh. about those you know that time and those boyfriends and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've just looked up actually Ari Aster and he's a cancer. <gasps> really? That makes sense, actually. Yeah, totally. Totally makes sense. Right? I wonder what his his birth, whole birth chart is. I'd be interested. interested Me too, to because actually he's, um because remember like in Hereditary, there's obviously the whole like 
miniature house business, Mm -hmm. you know, but in Midsummer, it's like happens again, but inside that kind of dormitory, it's, it's all painted on the walls. He's very, he's a, yeah, I mean, he's obsessed with the home, you know, he's a homemaker, homemaker. (laughs) classic cancer. Yeah. And uh, I, cause I, I'm about to move next week, uh, move house. And Uh I've been thinking about how to, you know, I've been thinking a lot about interiors and putting things on my wish lists and, you know, thinking about what colors I want everything. And um, midsummer, watching Midsummer, half of the time I was thinking, oh, when can I live in a place where I can have someone paint murals on the wall? And, <laughs> you know, have little, Norwe- little Norwegian beds, like you know, Scandinavian furniture. And like, so yeah, definitely, he's um, he's great with the, with home things. That is very, that is a very cancer trait. You're right. Very, very, <laughs> yeah. And like, I guess, um, I suppose, yeah, it, it is kind of an interesting starting point as well like this terrible uh tragic death of three people inside a house mm. you know kind of, he's kind of picking up where uh hereditary left off you mm-hmm. know there's this terrible trauma inside the home kind of thing um or this dysfunctional family thing and i mean yeah it's because i i watch midsummer and i kind of start to wonder like wh- what's the actual cult here you know mm. like is it the cult in sweden or is it danny's friend group yeah. <laughs> just because like it's the start of the movie just feels so much like there's this little in crowd and they're kind of like decided more or less that danny is just a burden because we can see that danny she suffers from a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. and she comes from a family like plagued with mental illness we i think her sister terry had bipolar right that's what she said that's what she said yeah so and and then you also feel like danny having this feeling like she's a burden like she is worried that christian's gonna break up with her etc we find out of course that christian's friend are all they're all uh, apart from pele they're all kind of like uh trying to pressure him to dump danny Mm -hmm. and um it's like they've got in crowd and she's kind of like the, the weakest link <laughs> i have to say in defense of josh he also doesn't it's only mark um, that's true. i have a that's i have true. a huge fondness for josh um yeah. he's an amazing character have you seen yeah. that meme on twitter um have you seen that really scary bit in midsummer where christian steals josh's research <laughs> <laughs> that is the scariest moment yeah i know actually what josh says is you're um you are indulging in this psychodrama to distract from the fact that you haven't picked a thesis that's that's josh's that's josh's contribution okay so actually i take it back it's not the whole friend group it's really just christian but they are all you know they're all still like they're all still part of this friend group even if you know they don't all kind of share the same values they're all happy to spend time together even if they don't really like each other i mean the fact that he's even named christian is interesting because it's like you know, I like to think of Midsummer as this kind of pitting against each other of uh, pagan, mm-hmm. like really ancient kind of like maybe even polytheistic or definitely eccentric kind of like co- commune versus Christianity, like this established uh, discourse that has become the norm. Mm-hmm. And these two are constantly at odds. And so maybe cr- Christian being who he is, like this plagiarist, yeah. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he, he's kind of like, I mean, not to denigrate Christianity. Um, I have a great fondness actually for Catholicism. My husband's Catholic. But, um, you know, maybe the setup of the film, the structure of it works because he's just this kind of undecided person who sees something maybe beneficial for him and he tries to co-opt it for himself Mm -hmm. which we can say maybe a lot of like abrahamic religions have done that with pagan rituals and stuff you know they've definitely plagiarized (laughs) so maybe it's the case that like um because this is how i see it i think that danny is wrapped up in kind of her attachment with her boyfriend christian um in the way that she may be like indoctrinated with like a mindset that keeps her maybe blinkered Mm -hmm. from herself 
So it is kind of like, it's almost like the relationship, even just the one-to-one relationship with, with Christian is toxic because, um, she accepts the worst attributes of herself. And like, that's what kind of bonds her to him. She feels like not, especially now with her whole family dying in this horrific way, she has no one else. So she's kind of using him as a crutch. But then this trip to Sweden, and especially Pele kind of really insisting that she come along. It's as if like, it's it's this metaphor for, you know, the metaphor of like finding yourself on like a summer break (laughs) and then falling for this like foreign guy is the healing, liberating thing you needed to escape the toxic relationship you were locked into as if you were like, you know, as if it was like um, Stockholm syndrome, which makes Mm -hmm. me think of Sweden again, of course, Stockholm. (laughs) Yeah. Also um, like Stockholm. Yeah. It was, it was um, named (laughs) after a relationship, wasn't it? Because uh, it was started with a group of, of bank robbers holding a group of customers hostage yeah. And one of the customers went on to have a, a romantic relationship with one of the bank robbers. Yeah. Um, which is a fascinating story. Absolutely. Um, one of my fave true crime stories. I know. It is such a classic. I mean, just the the whole idea of developing romantic feelings for your captor. Mm-hmm. I mean, this explains so many like abusive relationships and makes us understand why a lot of people would stay in the thing that is actually really bad for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe it's just Christian onto himself, kind of cheerleaded by Mark, who is maintaining Danny in, in this kind of like weird space where he doesn't have the balls to break up with her. He probably has his own reasons for keeping her around. But then on this trip far away, kind of disconnected from their normal routine, she suddenly like opens up to the idea of being with someone else. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of translates as this um, strange romance and with like nature, you know, Um, where we see kind of the people that she arrived with, all the international guests in this small uh, Swedish village. They're like disappearing one by one. (laughs) And we more and more we see like, Danny perceiving her body is blending together with the natural landscape mm. and the plant life as if she's kind of becoming one with the wildlife, you know? And the thing about it is that it's, it's really Pele who pursues Danny to re- reassure her that he's been through the same trauma. Like he bore witness to his parents burning to death and he understands how she feels and that she, he kind of encourages her to turn to nature and kind of identify with nature, actually, as a cure, as a panacea for kind of seeing it as something that resonates her internal life back to her. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Fight Club and Midsummer are essentially the same story of, yeah. of a person who resists a relationship with someone that has the same lack as them. Um, in favor of a more destructive relationship um, with people that don't have balls oh my god yes that needs to be the tagline (laughs) oh my you nailed it fuck yes (laughs) oh that's so fascinating that's they're literally the inverse of each other they are yeah where like in in fight club the toxic approach is starting a cult and like beating each other up whereas in midsummer it's literally the reverse she's trapped in a very toxic like damaging relationship and she's called to maybe turn to to a natural mechanism that can reflect her back to herself and reflect her lack like you said yeah that's so beautiful i knew (laughs) that i like i knew that i thought that it had a happy ending but i didn't quite know (laughs) why or how to justify it um so yeah this definitely this definitely <laughs> makes me feel makes me feel that I've I've had the right feelings about it all along um yeah it's so clever because at first we think that Pele is just trying to groom Danny into like joining a death cult mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'd be forgiven to just purely read it that way because it is ostensibly that but I think allegorically he 
communicates to Danny and acknowledges that her grief is valid. Mm-hmm. Like he, he doesn't try and like distract her away from it. And um, it's really ultimately about kind of a woman turning to nature to resolve her dis- dysfunctional kind of coping mechanisms that are actually caused by the brutality of civilization, like civilization, which, de- which demands of us that we just pretend that we're normal again, even if we're not, which is kind of what Christian is demanding of her, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that, that doesn't, that doesn't help her. She's constantly out of breath. Like she's always having a panic attack. Like, you know, when they take the drugs initially, when they first arrive and mm-hmm. they're all chilling under a tree on a hill and then Mark says, I love you guys. You're like my family. Yeah. And then it just triggers her. Like she's in so much pain. That's so interesting because I always thought that it was the just the, the, the mere mention of families that kind of sparked her trauma. But mm. it's actually a, a sort of visceral rejection of being in that family. Yes. Um, that she's kind of responding to. Um, it's so funny. I think I I think everyone's so good in that that film, but that's where Mark's writing is the best. Uh, you know where he says, you know, he's like, there are there are other people. I don't want other people. I don't want other people. I don't want outside people. He says, yeah, um, that's right. And then he says, everyone lie down. I think I'm going to lie down. I think everyone should lie down. Everyone should be lying down. And it is um, that that's definitely the kind of moment where they. Well, you're right, actually. Where it's not just the relationship with the cult, is where they're all kind of demanded to be, um, you know, equally panicky, equally yeah, um, in lockdown. In like, you know, yeah, in in sort of, and all lying down on the ground, like without yeah. and a rejecting of outside people. Exactly. Exactly. Um, like it sort of is. He's desperate to feel like just that little bit of semblance of control mm. when he's tripping he he wants to feel like the reassurance that the people he came with are synchronized with him he belongs to this group it's like determined and no one else can come in like burst that bubble yeah yeah you're, yeah you're so right i hadn't even noticed that i re- i noticed that that piece of dialogue i guess cuz i think cuz it's just really good dialogue um and I, i've always noticed and remembered it um, but it, it just happened to be completely fitting for this episode um, yeah. because it really is the dialogue that kind of establishes them in this unhappy forced yeah. family dynamic um, where they don't really want to, they don't really want to be doing the same thing or they don't really want to be no. all together, but they are. Um, and they're kind of, yeah, it's this, this pretend idea that they have, they're all happy together. Um, yeah it's almost like they're cosmetically identified yeah you know um and you know that's the re- the reason that they don't all survive the, the experience is because they're all not on the same page and not actually unified at all wow um, yes which and that's because uh, you know there are plenty of that like, I always I think it's not that like, they're not really you have this idea from the film that they're all doomed because they've all been drawn into this cult that has this plan for them mm. but they actually I think they all kind of have they all have a choice like they all have a chance to survive if they um are just kind of like open and productive and nice um that yeah. group particularly but they all kind of do something like destructive so they, that's right so they don't manage to um manage to survive it is a shame for the uh the other couple though because they don't seem to do anything wrong no like, exactly yeah, the, they're um, sort of yeah well, it is a shame they didn't they, they did not deserve that <laughs> no they don't they don't they're really sweet and uh and it is really and it also that kind of it kind of there's been a lot of um of uh readings of midsummer as being about like a white supremacist cult as well because right. all the people of color die and then everyone is like this very Swedish, like Aryan looking uh, group uh-huh, of people. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but still, like regardless of, of that reading, which I think is, is probably does mean something. I do think it is, you know, it is a nice, happy ending for Danny that she um, that she is well held. I think you said held in the um, yeah. in the sort of uh, the, bit, the bit where you were explaining the the theoretical approach. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting as well that both films feature um, communal crying. Yes. Well, this is what I wanted to mainly talk about in terms of identification, because we can see that when she starts to like um, turn to nature, mm. um, we see that she starts to kind of like 
observe herself echoed in the kind of natural component of this place. So I actually think that all of these Swedish people, I really like to think of them as like an allegorical extension of Pele, where it's like they're like a monolith, you know, and they all end up becoming this reliable mirror reflecting Danny back to herself and her spectrum of difficult emotions. Like they cry with her, they scream with her, they laugh with her, they play with her, you know? Mm. There's all this kind of like mirroring going on and it sort of sidesteps dissociation. She's fully present when she does that. They don't try and erase her panic attacks. They embrace her mm-hmm. with every everything that she feels. One explanation that I can give for why like the British couple had to disappear. They Maybe they were allegorically just this kind of painful reminder of a couple that cared about each other. Mm. Or and perhaps she, kind of um, a false like aspiration of what she, like yeah. kind of a false promise. Yes. Of what she could be with Christian, you know, of what you, what, why you stay with someone for a long time because you're hoping to become engaged. That's a good, yeah, you're right. Like kind of, kind of like this painful, idealized version of a couple that she's kind of striving for. Mm. But he's just like, he's thoughtless, absolutely thoughtless. Also, do you, I really like that f- scene where she sees where um, Christian's in the mating shed is all I can think oh, of yeah. it, which I absolutely love as a scene like I just think it's just brilliantly terrifying um uh-huh. but I really like that moment where she you know where she she looks through the keyhole yes. yeah uh which is such as like a psychoanalytic image yes um, the primal uh, scene the primal <laughs> scene like she kind of has to like bear witness to this tra- like to real the real kind of truth of like mm-hmm. of the trauma that she's kind of living through and it's wow. necessary and I also like that she vomits um after when she's like yes. it um because previously to that moment she's been holding all of her panic attacks in wow. um and it's the only time she has like an outward uh, sort of projectile panic attack um mm. because all of the other panic attacks kind of like swallowed down um they don't ever yeah they're bottled up and then she has this like primal scene she has this like primal reaction (gasps) and then and then everything's okay again oh my god that is so true yeah that oh yeah it is a total primal scene (laughs) so important in all films Yes. (laughs) (laughs) yes absolutely yes i'm so glad you said that i'm I want this um, podcast to become like a kind of headquarters for all uh, unacceptable bodily functions. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like the abject podcast. The abject podcast. Definitely. <laughs> kind of like the thing that she always might have suspected that Christian wanted to do on this boys trip abroad, yeah. you know, that he maybe wanted to like, you know, have a fling or whatever. Um, because the boys had kind of already been talking about like beautiful Swedish women and like etc., and it, it kind of materializes in that moment in that crazy shed scene where he, she actually sees and confronts the tr- his his desire, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and how he's actually extremely unfaithful. It's it's not enough that he's had those thoughts because I think it's quite normal to like find other people attractive. It's the fact that he is duplicitous and he he really is not invested in the relationship with, with Danny. He's just going through the motions mm. to humor her and himself. And and he's prepared to lead a double life and like uh, express his desires elsewhere. It's okay. an interesting example of uh, Zizek's desire realized being a nightmare um, mm. theory, though, because you know, I, my friend Nick... Um, pointed out that he's he's pretty much date raped you know in this film like you know he gets given a drug yeah it's true and they're all like push you know they like lead him into this place and they're you know they're all like it's all kind of orchestrated it's like actually a real role reversal of horror you know that this that his body's been wanting the entire time is to hook up with a swedish girl and then he's gets this this you know he's gets this terrible thing happening to him, which is eventually is like fatal. <laughs> so it's interesting to see that um, to see that kind of that happen to a man in a film. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, absolutely it's great. And actually, just in the lead up to that as well, the fact that um, 
you know, uh, he has to witness Danny winning this dance contest as well. Yeah. Like, that's a really interesting scene, that whole bit where, of course, you know, what is it? The May Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, the female participants are dancing for a long number of hours and the person with the highest level of stamina wins the title of May Queen. Mm-hmm. And then they're kind of adored by the entire Swedish tribe. The comp- It's a competition, but she- there's no pressure really. It's kind of made out in a very fun way Mm -hmm. and she kind of is brought in with the other participants who kind of make her feel like she's with friends yeah and they're it's not like a terror it's not like a perfectly choreographed dance it starts out like fairly structured and then it becomes really chaotic and she persists and persists and it's kind of this fevered delirium um this this protracted performance um, and she even kind of absorbs the Swedish language in the process. Like she yeah. starts communicating with her fellow competitors, which crosses over like the discursive barrier. And to me, this is kind of like maybe maybe um, Christian's primal scene. Her performance is so authentic and she's like, it's so uncanny when she starts speaking Swedish, yeah. you know, and, and kind of emphasizing the power of nature, like erasing signifiers that separate people. Um, and she just kind of surrenders to this love of, 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 of nature. Whereas with Christian, I feel like he's, yeah, you're right. Like he is being used Mm. in the shed Yeah, and it's, it's all very like formulaic. Like he, he's kind of even guided at one point and during the intercourse. Yeah, because he's taking too long (laughs) (laughs) Um, because his, because what he's doing is not productive. Yeah. exactly um yeah I love that I love that scene um the dance scene is there's few there's you know there are certain scenes in cinema that make me so joyful and so happy and that scene is definitely one of them where she where she really kind of finds herself through this dance yeah Um, it's lovely it's the whole thing is just lovely I'm so glad I saw it on the big screen me too it reminds me of um the the dances in the Dolce Vita, yeah. Where, uh, like, I just where I was just like thrilled and so happy to be witnessing yeah. them. Um, I felt elated. Yeah, honestly. me too. Me too, definitely. And I feel like just that is is such a good um, representation of the film, really. Like the whole process of being in this place and marking Midsummer and everything, kind of erasing the destructive dimension of civilization, where these kind of toxic group hierarchies and you know as they're want to do to do uh they always try and ostracize the the weakest link Mm. um but here she's kind of actually confronted with how two-faced society can be Mm. and instead she's kind of like i don't know just yeah i guess really held you know by a pele um that bit where she wins the competition and he kisses her oh <laughs> god it's so cool yeah it's so cool it's amazing <laughs> i want to see midsummer too i want to see her get together with pele like i want to see everything yeah i want to see their children like they're gonna yeah. be so cute um i know <laughs> but even just the fact that like christian is made to wear that bear suit and then ritualistically burned to a crisp it is kind of like just so it is really cleansing isn't it like Mm -hmm. she's just kind of exercising her demons and removing the the source of anxiety she kind of yeah in a way she's kind of watching in awe as her fears of abandonment go up in flames yeah you know yeah so it's just a beautiful film highly recommend yeah it is beautiful (laughs) don't be scared of midsummer it's no, don't be wonderful. scared. And don't be scared of, the, of toxic masculinity in Fight Club either because it can't hurt you. And in the end, no. the guy gets a girlfriend. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he's sort of like um, reintegrated into uh, the dimension of emotion. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, Mary, thank you so much for your readings of the films this week. They were inspired 
my thank you so much that's lovely sarah i hope and i hope you have a very happy birthday tomorrow oh thank you so much so what are we talking about next episode i'm losing track of that so next time so we're already like past the midway point we're going to be talking about brainwashing the master and going clear whoop amazing i had an idea yeah as a bonus when we finish this Mm -hmm. do you want to watch the vow the nexium documentary and see what we think of it yes i'm hearing very good things yes i do okay amazing let's do it okay i'm moving in with a girl who has now tv next week so i'll be able to watch it yes (laughs) well always nice to talk to you sarah and thank you to all of you listening um do the usual follow us on social media um rate and review our podcast please follow us on spotify or wherever you get your podcasts um and we do take donations especially because it's my birthday. Um, Yes. And thank you for all your support and listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. My body is a cage that keeps me from dancing with the one I love. But my mind holds the key. My body is a cage Stay.